Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. In March, while having breakfast with her husband, Haley Bieber experienced stroke-like symptoms. She was taken to the hospital by ambulance, and by the time she got there, her symptoms had luckily resolved on their own. However, she learned that she had suffered a mini-stroke. At first, they thought the cause was a combination of birth control pill use, a recent bout of COVID, a history of migraines, and a long flight. But additional testing led to the discovery of a heart condition, which was the likely cause of her stroke. Today, I'm here with Dr. Martin Jitsi, a professor of neurology at Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine, vice chair of the Department of Neurology, and director of the Cerebral Vascular Diseases Program at Hackensack University Medical Center to gain a better understanding of what exactly happened to Haley Bieber. Thank you so much for joining us today, doctor. Happy to be here. So before we dive into Haley's story, I want to get to know you a little bit. Can you tell us what brought you to this specific career? Hmm. This um, was not on your list of questions. <laughs> I've always been attracted to neurology, and uh, I'm interested in issues around the brain and the mind. And psychiatry attracted me because I was certainly interested in taking care of people's emotional and psychological problems. But neurology appealed to me because you can localize a problem to a specific area in the brain. And often that leads to a solution, which is very gratifying for me and for the patient. So almost like solving a puzzle. Exactly. So are there any interesting stories that you can tell us that have happened throughout your career? You know, honestly, a lot of the interesting stories uh, center on patients who have had strokes. Um, I think what makes them very interesting is they can come uh, very unexpectedly and uh, unexpected in the sense of you wouldn't ex- expect it to, to see this in this particular patient. So young people who present with strokes yeah. um, from tears in their arteries, um, from trauma to the neck or the head. Uh, you know, we've had patients who presented with a car accident, came in as a a trauma code into the emergency room at Hackensack. And uh, it was shortly after they were doing the assessments for her trauma that they discovered she wasn't moving one side of her body. And it, it took some sorting out over the next minutes to hours to figure out that she had had a stroke which led to the car accident, not the other way around. Um, And uh, this was in a young person as well. Uh, So they're they're interesting puzzles. You can reverse these strokes. This patient did very well. We were able to pull the clot out that had caused her stroke, and uh, she hadn't sustained too much trauma. So it was a good good story. Wow. That almost actually sounds like Haley Bieber. So she apparently suffered this mini stroke, um, which was caused by a clot that she had that went to her brain. And by the time she even made it to the hospital... Mm-hmm. her symptoms have resolved. Is that normal? Well, I, I'd say the lucky ones are the patients who have symptoms that resolve. Uh, obviously, they're lucky that it resolved, but they're also lucky that it was a warning sign. It's a, it's a, a, a brush with 
death or disability that enables you to do something to solve that problem. Uh, they they call that in many cases the mini stroke, which is right. the the term that you referred to there. Uh, which as a neurologist makes me uncomfortable because I don't know if mini stroke means a small stroke or a brief stroke-like episode. We tend to use it to refer to a temporary neurologic uh, deficit from a vascular problem in the brain. Um, and it's mini in that sense, mini in that it's brief. So go into that. What What is a stroke? What is, mm. you know, what does that even entail in your body? So... Stroke refers to the sudden loss of circulation somewhere in your brain. And the majority of those occur when a blood vessel is plugged up. So a clot or a piece of plaque floats up into the brain, plugs up a blood vessel, and you don't have oxygen or glucose flowing to part of the brain, and you lose function in that part of the brain. Another possibility is that you lose the circulation because the blood vessel ruptures. So when it ruptures, you've got blood pouring into the uh, substance, which we call the parenchyma of the brain. Uh, the consequence is the same in the sense that you're not getting blood flow where it needs to go, but you've also got this clot, which uh, has mass, has size, and is, is pushing uh, important structures out of the way. So you have two problems going on simultaneously. About 85% of strokes are the first type, the plugged, uh, the plugged blood vessel, kind. the plugged kind, which we call ischemic stroke due to a loss of circulation as opposed to a rupture. And what is there going to be different symptoms for each of those or would they most likely be the same? The hemorrhagic strokes, the ones that come from a rupture of a blood vessel, uh, generally lead to very sudden symptoms um, or symptoms that progress rapidly over a period of minutes uh, accompanied by severe headache in many cases. So they announce themselves quite dramatically and people go quickly to the emergency room. The ischemic types can be very mild. They can be gradual. They can be stuttering in onset in the sense that you get symptoms, the symptoms go away, they come back again. Uh, so it's not unusual to get someone coming into the emergency room who says, oh, uh, you know, I have weakness on the left side and I'm a little numb on that side. And you say, when did it start? And you say, well, two hours ago, but I had it yesterday and two weeks ago as well. And our hope all, is always that people will come in the first time yeah. uh, so that we can look into it as quickly as possible. Absolutely. So you mentioned left side weakness numbness are there any other symptoms that we should be aware of yeah well the the range of possible symptoms is extremely broad because it's anything that the brain can do but the most common symptoms are weakness on one side of the body so so left face, or right arm leg but it's going to be one side in almost all cases could be left side could be right side uh, you can have prominent speech problems ranging anywhere from slurred speech to the inability to come up with words at all. Um, just sort of gibberish or mumbling. And with that, the inability to understand speech. So it's not just that your mouth and your tongue are not working, but that you can no longer communicate. Language is gone. Uh, vision can go, uh, loss of vision on one side, by which I mean one side of the world, not one eye. <laughs> so not being able to see to the left from your left eye or to the left from your right eye. 
that that is characteristic of stroke. Um, and sometimes a sudden loss of balance with or without vertigo, which is a sensation of spinning. Wow. Wow. So it's really, you know, because the brain is two two sides put together, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really that whatever side the clot is on, that, that side shuts down. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So you, you'll have loss of all functions, um, whatever part of the brain is supplied by that blood vessel. And the, the blood vessels are, for the most part, left and right. Uh, so the brain is going to be uh, damaged left and right. Yeah. So how would you diagnose something like this? Would it just be an obvious, all right, she has this, this, and this? It's obviously a stroke. Well, because we know the vascular anatomy, meaning we know a particular blood vessel supplies this particular combination of parts of the brain, when the deficits that the patient presents with follow that pattern, we can say, aha, this is something that fits, let's say, the middle cerebral artery, and therefore it is most likely to be stroke. The time course is relevant, of course, um, just by the virtue of the name, stroke means yeah. sudden. Um, it, it, so a, a sudden deficit in something that fits the vascular anatomy allows you to make a clinical diagnosis of stroke. Most people assume we're making the diagnosis by doing a CAT scan, and it is true. We do a CAT scan on all these patients immediately on arrival to the emergency department. But in the majority of cases, the CAT scan is normal. So we are not doing the CAT scan to confirm a stroke. We are doing a CAT scan to rule out the bleeding type of stroke. Good to know. And then what about risk factors? Because Haley Bieber is 25 years old. She seems like a healthy individual. You know, what kind of risk factors would she possibly have to Mm. experience a stroke like this? Well, let's talk about the usual risk factors first and why it's such a puzzle that it would happen to someone uh, at her age and so healthy. Uh, Most of the risk factors are the same risk factors we associate with cardiovascular disease, heart disease. So diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And in terms of behaviors, number one would be tobacco use. Uh, Number two uh, would be excessive alcohol use. And number three, other drugs, uh, stimulants, cocaine, methamphetamine, etc. Age is a risk factor, but we don't sort of talk about that as a risk factor most of the time because there's nothing you can do about it. Um, So what do you do when you're faced with a young person? You say, well, are you diabetic? Are you a smoker? And if the answer is no, we have to think about the much less common causes. And in this case, we're talking about a problem within the heart itself. Now, the most common source in the heart for stroke is atrial fibrillation, which we call AFib. And what is that? AFib is where the upper chamber of the heart, the atrium, instead of beating regularly and delivering a a bolus of blood to the lower chamber of the heart, uh, quivers instead. Uh, The medical term is fibrillates. Uh, So when it's quivering, it's not really delivering the blood very efficiently. And in particular, the blood can become stagnant in the atrium and clots can form. When blood's not flowing, it clots. Uh, And what will happen is that eventually the atrium will beat and it'll push that clot into the ventricle and the ventricle will push that clot out of the heart 
into your body and frequently into your brain. So now you've got a clot plugging up a blood vessel in the brain, but it originated in the heart. Wow, that's some journey that that blood clot's taken all the way up. Yes, yes. There's a, there's a lot of chance associated with that, but um, so much of our circulation is to the brain uh, that the probability of it resulting in stroke is pretty high. So AFib, common source of stroke. You've see, probably seen commercials on television that are uh, blood thinners that prevent the clots from forming. But again, AFib is something that usually affects older people and not uh, women in their 20s. Uh, so the other thing that can happen is you can be born with a hole in between the chambers of the heart. So normally the, the left heart is divided from the right heart so that the right heart can pump blood into the lung and the left heart can pump blood into the rest of the body. And if the left and the right heart communicate with each other by a hole in the septum that divides them, uh, the blood can skip the lung and go straight into the arteries and get pumped into your body. Uh, normally not a problem. But if you have any tendency to form clots in your veins, let's say in the legs or in the arms, those clots, and get, instead of getting filtered out through the lungs, are going to end up in the other side of the heart and cause a stroke again. And travel up. And travel up to the brain and plug up a blood vessel. Wow. So how about the birth control and all those other things that they listed? Are those also risk factors for clotting, like you said? Yes, so it's a, it's a very good point because we, we talk about uh, hormonal contraception as well as hormone replacement therapy later in life as a risk factor for stroke. Um, and, and the reality is it's really a very rare cause because those hormone, those artificial hormones, um, cause clots in veins, not in arteries. And it's the arteries that are supplying the brain. So you have to ask yourself the question, why would a clot in a vein lead to a stroke? And the answer lies in this hole in the heart, which we call the patent foramen ovale or PFO. Yes, yes. She did mention that. And she, she mentioned that the grade or, or the grading scale of the hole was at a five, which mm. apparently is the highest grade you could get. I'm guessing that's a size. It is. It correlates with size. It's really based on um, the amount of blood that's crossing the PFO itself rather than the blood that's going through the normal route through the, the lungs first. Uh, and the way we measure that uh, is, this, is this peculiar but sort of entertaining test um, using bubbles, micro bubbles. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, it, it's true. You don't want to inject air into people's veins mm -hmm. uh, because you can, you can cause an air embolus. You can cause essentially a big bubble that plugs up the vessels in the lungs. But if you make them micro bubbles, like at what we call agitated saline. So we take two syringes, one with air in it, one with saline in it, and a stopcock that connects the two and inject back and forth between the two uh, syringes to create foam, essentially. Um, swish it all up, create the foam, and then inject that into the veins. That will not cause any problems with the lungs. Um, so what you can do with an ultrasound 
is uh, record whether the bubbles make their way into the arterial supply. Remember, you're injecting them into a vein, the venous supply. Mm -hmm. um, and you can do that with an ultrasound of the heart, which we call an echocardiogram, or an ultrasound of the brain, which we call a transcranial Doppler. Ooh. And you listen for the bubbles. <laughs> uh, and they make this little popping sound, just like the commercials for champagne and ginger ale, etc. We we're listening to those bubbles. And uh, you can hear them on transcranial Doppler, or you can see them on the uh, echocardiogram. What a weird concept. Who would come up with such a concept? I, that's of a great like... question. I don't know who first thought of it. Yeah. But it works really well. And so what you can do is count the number of bubbles that come across in a certain period of time, usually a few seconds. Um, and uh, based on the number of bubbles, you grade the PFO uh, as severity. So then how do you fix this? Do you continue to move through your life, you know, having this hole in mm. your heart or, or do you close it or, or how does this even become right. fixable? Yeah. So let's first back up a moment and say that lots of people have PFOs. Uh, it's anywhere from 20 to 25% of the population wow. has a PFO, don't know about it and will never know about it because it will never bother them. Uh, so it's a very small proportion of these that are responsible for stroke. And as you might imagine, it's usually responsible for the strokes in young people and, and not in older people because the older people have made it all the way through life. You know, yeah. their first 60 or 70 years, if it hasn't caused trouble, then it's probably not going to. Uh, but uh, if you suspect that it has caused the stroke, there are ways of calculating the probability that the PFO is responsible for the stroke, um, essentially by checking to see if you have the usual risk factors. And if you don't, the probability that the PFO caused it goes up. Uh, once you've reached the decision that this patient has a PFO and that it is likely responsible for the stroke, then you can close it. And it is this great technique that is done endovascularly, meaning within a blood vessel. So a catheter is threaded into a vein. The venous system leads you to the heart and you pass the catheter through the septum, through the PFO or the septum, um, and you deploy this little umbrella, basically. It's this little mesh umbrella that is used to sort of cup the septum and the PFO in a way that it pulls it back towards the midline. And then you deploy another umbrella on the other side and pull them the two together. And you've now created this seal, like this little suction cup seal um, hmm. of the two sides. And then you take the catheter out, leave the little umbrellas in place, and normal heart tissue will gradually grow over the, the umbrellas the, the umbrellas and it will just be as if you had a, a normal septum a fully closed septum from birth wow that's very interesting yeah it's great technique. we'll have to find a video of that and tag it into this podcast yes. because the concept in my mind of umbrellas and your heart and like they must be super super tiny because of your heart and the vessels and very interesting yeah is this something that Haley could have gone her whole life without knowing or without having to deal with? Or is it something that people should seek out? You know, do I have a PFO? Because you mentioned it was common. But, you know, 
and maybe I'm answering my own question because you talk about stroke all the time Mm -hmm. and you're talking about risk factors all the time. Would it be beneficial for people to know if they had a PFO to remove that risk factor? A great and difficult question because as I pointed out, 20 to 25% of the population has a PFO. Right. And in the vast majority of cases, it's never going to cause a problem. Right. So the disadvantage of screening everybody for a PFO is that you will scare lots of patients and lots of doctors um, about something that is never going to cause them any trouble. I would say that if it has not caused a stroke or TIA, the mini stroke we were referring to before, you should leave it alone and therefore it's not worth finding out that it's there. I confess that some patients will find out about their PFO with their first stroke, which is something that obviously you'd rather avoid. But I do think that if we screened everybody, there would be millions of people saying, do I need to have this closed? And uh, the answer should be no, if it hasn't caused any problems. And um, I don't think the added anxiety is worth it. I don't want to know if I have one. No, exactly. That's kind of like those those tests that test you for all those crazy diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and all these other different neurological diseases. Yeah. And do you want to know if you have those risk factors or not? It's kind of on the right. same. So there's the anxiety associated with knowing about something that may never, will likely never do you any harm. And there's also the possibility that someone will be enticed to say, well, let's just do a few more studies, let's do something invasive, let's do a procedure. And there are complications associated with many studies and with many procedures. So you want to make sure the risk-benefit ratio is in your favor. And what turns it in your favor is a high probability of stroke, which you don't have if you've never had a TIA. So I want to backpedal for a second and talk a little bit about clots. So Haley Bieber mentioned that one of her doctors mentioned to her that a possibility for her stroke could have been a long flight she took. She recently flown from LA to Paris and back again in a very short amount of time. She felt she slept the whole time, didn't walk around, and they thought, well, that could be a possibility of where you produce this clot from. My question is, is now with so many people working from home and working from home offices, is that same possibility in people that work and sit all day long as it, they would on a plane, or is that totally different? I think it's relevant. Um, the The issue with airplane flight for most of us is that you're stuck in a chair and really cannot move around and are discouraged from moving around. And you are there for many hours, which is not something you typically do at home or at work. Um, Again, I'll point out that the clot forms in a vein in your calf, usually, uh, and that kind of clot would normally not lead to a stroke because it would get filtered out in the lung, as we said before, but in her case, the PFO was responsible. But your question was, can this happen with us working from home, being more sedentary? Um, It's important to remember to get up and walk around every hour or so. Um, to, to keep that blood moving. 
but I, I do think it would be unusual for us to be really stuck in a chair at home for five hours uh, or, or longer the way you would on a flight. So I, I doubt it's contributing to much in the way of increased clot formation in the general population. What can we do to prevent stroke from even happening in the first place? Is there anything that we could do? Well, the most important thing is to avoid those risk factors. So if you are physically active, you have a healthy diet, you're going to avoid hypertension. You're going to avoid diabetes. You're going to keep your cholesterol down. And if you avoid cigarette smoking, great. Uh, so when you, when you eliminate those risk factors, uh, even, even in someone who already has those risk factors, here's the interesting statistic, um, and they've had a stroke or a TIA, you, you control those risk factors, you can drop their risk of a subsequent stroke by 80%. Wow. So that's pretty dramatic. Yeah. But even more effective would be what we call primordial prevention, meaning don't get those problems to begin with. So yeah, stay stay active, eat well, uh, and don't smoke, and your risk of getting stroke is very low. Wow, 80%. That's a big number to yeah. be able to prevent it a second time. Very effective. We know for Haley's case, the treatment was to umbrella method in the heart. Mm -hmm. um, but for you know someone who doesn't have a PFO, what would be the treatment to, to treat a stroke? And would they have, you know, long-term effects after after that happens long-term effects yes um stroke is the number one cause of disability in the united states the treatment for an acute stroke meaning as it happens not the rehabilitative aspects after it's happened uh, center on eliminating that clot and there are two ways we can do that one is to dissolve it by injecting a drug intravenously so that the drug travels to where the clot is and then dissolves it over a period of minutes. Uh, and that's called TPA. And the other is to remove the clot by essentially suctioning it out through uh, a catheter inserted into an artery. These treatments have to occur very quickly. I could uh, imagine. The statistic, I believe, is that you lose two million nerve cells every minute when you have are having a stroke uh, so obviously you can lose tens of millions of nerve cells uh, if it's untreated so ideally you have symptoms you are aware of them you are able to call 911 you get to an emergency room if you are there within the first three sometimes as long as four and a half hours and you do not have bleeding on your scan, we can inject this, this drug, TPA, to dissolve the blood clot. And that works in many cases, but not all. In fact, not even the majority. Sometimes, uh, sometimes the clots are just too big. So what we do is additionally, we perform another type of scan to look at the blood vessels themselves to see whether or not there is a large clot plugging up a blood vessel. And if it's large enough that we can get to it, then a, a neurosurgeon or neurologist or radiologist with the appropriate interventional training will come very quickly, um, 
thread the catheter through an artery and suction that clot out. And the effectiveness of that is very good. It's uh, it's a almost 50% of, of people who have that the appropriate imaging results can have their stroke reversed. It's almost like vacuum, vacuuming your, your veins clean. Yes, it takes out the clots. It doesn't take out the cholesterol plaques, but it does take out the clots. <laughs> we did touch on something that I do want to touch on before I let you leave today, mm-hmm. and that is rehab and the long-term effects of stroke. I mean, I would understand that every single person is different obviously Haley Bieber by the time she got to the hospital she was fine and talking and walking Mm -hmm. but I could imagine that some are not so lucky so what does that look like for a patient so they have a stroke they come into the hospital what's next Patients with stroke once they're admitted are evaluated by a rehabilitation team uh, within uh, the first two days. Uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, we are looking at all of these functions to see what the deficits are and what can be done to improve them. And the majority of patients need some type of therapy. Uh, many end up in rehabilitation hospitals, acute inpatient rehabilitation, where they can get intensive therapy, which is very effective. Um, some may be weaker for reasons of other comorbidities, uh, congestive heart failure. Um, they already have difficulty walking from arthritis, hip fractures, etc., and they can't do as much therapy. And they end up in a subacute rehabilitation facility where they can get up to three hours of therapy. And some are lucky enough to go home and get outpatient therapy, uh, which is great to be able to be home and get therapy. But uh, everybody benefits from therapy. So we, we do give some, one or all of those types of therapy to the large majority of our patients. And would therapy also be in addition to any sort of medication or any sort of alternative medicines to help benefit the patient? Yes, uh, there are a number of medications that we will use to prevent a second stroke an additional stroke. Uh, The most common of these being aspirin or drugs like aspirin. There are other drugs that have similar effects on blood clotting, but aspirin is the most common. Uh, But again, depending on those risk factors, if you have high blood pressure, we're going to treat it. If you have diabetes, we're going to treat that. If your cholesterol is high, we're going to put you on a statin medication to lower it. Um, So the number of meds somebody goes home varies very much depending on their risk factors, but most do go home on aspirin, it's true. And any alternative methods for, you know, helping those who've had a stroke, whether it be acupuncture or different nutritionists or things like that, or would that be more along the lines depending on their risk factors to begin with? Well, I see acupuncture as being part of the rehabilitative approach. And in fact, it's it's given at many of these rehabilitation hospitals that I talked about before. So it, it is useful for the management of pain uh, most significantly, but can be used for spasticity as well. And uh, nutrition is extremely important and is part of the education that will be given to patients both in the hospital and in a rehabilitation setting because you can help lower uh, your 
risks by modifying your diet. You can treat your diabetes with diet. You can treat your hypertension by limiting salt intake, and you can treat your cholesterol uh, with uh, a low-fat diet. So those are all important, and I think nutritionists are a very important part of the rehabilitation team. Anything else you'd like to share with us today? Take-home messages are avoid the risk factors. I mean, I, I know that's that's not such exciting news, but exercise and diet, really, really important, and smoking is a huge risk factor. Um, the other take-home message is to be aware of the stroke symptoms we talked about. Weakness on one side, inability to speak, loss of vision on one side, uh, sudden loss of balance or uh, development of vertigo. Know those symptoms and remember that this is an emergency and you have to get to the emergency department very quickly. If you are one of the people who turns out to have a PFO, understand that they don't all need to be closed. Uh, and that we do have uh, well-defined criteria for this. And in, in fact, we have something called a heart-brain clinic, which is a joint venture between the Department of Neurology and the Structural Heart Program in Cardiology at Hackensack University Medical Center, where we, as a team, evaluate every patient and decide whether they would actually benefit from closure. And sometimes the answer is no. Thank you so much for being with us today, Doctor. I appreciate being here and being able to reach out to more people who can learn about it. If you have a topic you'd like for us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. The material provided through this Help You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.